We're so glad you could join us for the mornings at YCBC today. We want to thank you for being a part of our online family and we hope that this message encourages you, blesses you and helps you grow in your walk with Him. So let's get into the Word. We started last week a, a series uh, that we've been calling, that we've called Dear Church, uh, which is seven letters from Jesus to His church. Um, and so we're continuing that this morning. This is letter number two. Uh, and so I'm going to pray uh, once more as we come to God's Word, um, that as the end of that reading that Jill read for us, that those who have ears to hear would truly hear and, and understand. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation that you gave the Apostle John. Uh, We thank you that he was faithful and wrote it down. We thank you that he was faithful to send it out to those churches. We thank you that that brothers and sisters in Christ have been faithful throughout millennia that we would be able to receive from your word this morning. So I pray that you would open our ears to hear, you would open our hearts and mind to understand that we might receive what you would say to our church this morning, that what you would say to each of us as individuals, followers of you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So to start off with this morning, I want to ask you, is your faith like a Jenga tower? I've stolen the giant Jenga from uh, Kids Church this morning, uh, so hopefully they weren't looking too much. I did ask Crystal. She said it was okay uh, if I took it this morning. But I want to ask you, is your faith like a Jenga tower. And I just want to leave that question hanging this morning. We'll come back to that. Hopefully it'll make sense by the time we get to the end. But is your faith like a Jenga tower? This reading that Jill read for us this morning, this this letter to the church at Smyrna, begins with these words in Revelation 2.8. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. And so in this series, this Dear Church series, we're we're engaging with the words of Jesus himself. We're engaging with seven letters that Jesus dictated to the church. And so last week we had a bit of a look at Revelation 1 and, and we read this story of how John had this encounter with the glorified risen Lord Jesus. And there was a number of things that John saw about him and there was a number of things that Jesus said about himself. And one of those things in Revelation chapter 1 was that Jesus described himself as the first and the last, the one who had died and had come to life. And so through each of these letters in John chapter 2 and uh, sorry Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 Jesus regrabs one of those revelations about himself as he begins the letter. And so here he says, I am the first and the last. Now this is Old Testament language of Yahweh, God, the creator of the universe. And so Jesus is claiming to be divine. He's also claiming to be the eternal one. First and last is beginning and end, it's Alpha and Omega, it's, it's He existed before there was anything to exist, and He will exist for all eternity. He is the Eternal One. The, 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 word, the Greek word for last is actually eschatos, and so if you've done any kind of theological study, you'll know that the study of what happens at the end of all this is called eschatology. That might be really boring for some of us, but the point is that Jesus is eschatology. Jesus is the last thing. He has the end in his hand. And he goes on to say, I have died and come to life. And so this is the man who is both God and man who's been crucified and resurrected. He has overcome death. 
we might wonder, why doesn't Jesus just make it a little bit simpler and say, tell the church at Smyrna, this is what Jesus says. Rather than all this first and last, died and come to life stuff. Well, the reason is, I believe, is that Jesus is revealing himself as who we need him to be for our present situation. So we've already had the reading, but we'll unpack it a bit more. And so the present situation for the church at Smyrna is that they are facing persecution and death. And so Jesus reveals himself to them as the eternal one, as he who is beyond this world, as he who has overcome death. Jesus reveals himself to us as the one, as the thing that we need for our circumstances. And so the question here, before we get into the meat of this, is what is your situation? What situations are you facing right now? And who is Jesus revealing himself to be in that? I think if we pause to listen, we might be you know, facing job loss. Then maybe Jesus is, is wanting to reveal himself to you as, as your provider. Whatever your situation is, I believe that Jesus wants to reveal himself as the very one that you need for that situation. And so what is the situation for the church in Smyrna? Well, in verse 9, Jesus goes on, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And so Jesus says, I know. This is another thing that he says in every single one of these letters. I know. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty. Now, Smyrna was a wealthy city. It was on a harbour. It was kind of north of uh, Ephesus that we looked at last week. Uh, It was a centre of commerce and trade. It was also a, a splendorous city. It was one of the kind of key cities of the Asian province of Rome. It was kind of competing with Ephesus for that. Uh, It had a proud pagan uh, culture. And so what that means is there was temples and pagan worship and and things like that. And and so a lot of, in the ancient world, the the pagan religion and rituals was connected to the commerce and culture and trade. And so for for the the Christians, for those who had faith in Jesus, who were refusing to participate in that, that would have cut them off from much of the wealth of the city around them. The point is that their affliction and poverty is because of their faith. Add to that, Jesus says, and I know about the slander of the Jewish community. And so there was a significant Jewish community in Smyrna, and what would happen sometimes in the Roman world is is that the Romans would... Uh, acknowledge some ancient religions. So if you were part of an ancient religion like Judaism, they would let you keep doing that. And so you could still be a part of things in some circumstances, not always. And so uh, the Jewish place of gathering, the synagogue, was against the church. And so Jesus goes as far to say it's a synagogue of Satan. Now that word Satan means adversary. And so what I believe Jesus is saying is that the synagogue has become an adversary to the church. I don't think it necessarily means that that Satan had possessed the church, as we might think of it in that sense, or that that demons had overcome the minds of the Jews in the church. It's it's merely that the church had become an adversary, sorry, the synagogue had become an adversary to the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus says they're not true Jews, and, and so this isn't about their ethnicity, It's not that their biological history 
was not actually Jewish, but they claimed it to be. It was about were they God's people or not. And so, in opposing God's will, they, they were no longer true Jews in the sense of being God's people. Jesus kind of encountered this in his earthly ministry, and we see it in, in John, just to kind of give an example in different language of what we're talking about here. In John chapter 8, verses 41 to 47, <clears throat> Jesus is talking to some of the religious leaders and they say to, to Jesus, we're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And so Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I've come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe in me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling you the truth, why do you... Why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. And so Jesus is, is saying a similar thing about the synagogue in Smyrna. He's saying they don't belong to God. They might be trying their hardest to be God's people, like we saw the Apostle Paul kind of came against the church because he was trying his hardest to be God's person, but he, but he misunderstood and actually became an enemy of God. And so that's what's happening for the church at Smyrna. They are being slandered by the synagogue because the synagogue has rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And it can be a bit sobering for us as well. Even if we have faith in Jesus, we can fall into the trap of doing Satan's work for him when we slander the church. I'm not talking about constructive criticism and feedback and stuff like that. But when, when we slander the church, even as those who have faith in Jesus, we're giving Satan a helping hand. It's a sobering thought. And so the, the church in Smyrna is afflicted and in poverty. They're experiencing slander from the Jewish community in Smyrna. But despite all this, Jesus says to them, Yet you are rich. Yet you are rich. Jesus is not naive about the circumstances. He says, I know. And when Jesus says he knows something, he knows it. Yet he also knows that the truest thing about the church is that they are rich. The Greek word here means abounding in wealth, fully, fully resourced, having God's muchness. The definition actually said that. I didn't make it up. It talks about having all our needs met. And so the experience of the church in Smyrna is one of material poverty, affliction, of lack, of being slandered, being spoken against. But they at the same time have all of that they could possibly need because they have Jesus. And so they are rich. And so the key thing for us to grab hold of here is that if all else is stripped away and, and all that we are left with is Jesus, then we are rich beyond all comparison. 
if all else is stripped away and all that we have left is Jesus, then we are rich beyond all comparison. This isn't just a novel kind of idea that we see right at the end of the Bible. Like, you know, one thing I don't like about Revelation is it's kind of right at the end here and it feels a bit, this bit's like I can't really, boom. But it's not this idea that comes just at the end. James, in his letter to the church, in James chapter 2, verse 5, says, Listen, my brothers, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen who, those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. In Hebrews chapter 11, Verse uh, 24 to 26, we're told that by faith Moses, when he had grown up, so this is thousands of years before Jesus, but by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses had this choice. He, he was a, a Hebrew, a, a Jewish, but they would have called themselves Hebrews at that time. He was a Hebrew, but the story, you know, he was rescued from the genocide that the Egyptian people were carrying out at that time and he was raised in Pharaoh's household and so he got kind of this unusual choice. Do I live in the palace or do I be persecuted with my people? And so we're told that by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ who would not appear on earth in bodily form for thousands of years later. It wasn't an immediate reward for him, but he regarded disgrace, he regarded affliction and poverty and trial and definitely slander as greater worth because he could have God, he could have Jesus looking forward prophetically. He regarded that as greater value than all of the treasures that Egypt could offer. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gets in on this idea. In chapter 3, verses 7 and 9, the Apostle Paul, 7 to 9, the Apostle Paul says this, But whatever were gains to me in this world, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything I lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. I said last week a, a more literal translation would be crap. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And so the Apostle Paul is sharing this idea as well. He's saying that, that whatever this world could offer me, and by the way, I've pretty much lost it all, but I consider it garbage, a loss. I don't even count the value of it compared to the glory of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. He's saying the same thing that Jesus is saying to the church at Smyrna. It might look like I'm poor. It might look like you know, getting stoned to what everyone thought was death and getting shipwrecked several times and, and flogged. That might look bad, but I consider myself rich because I have Jesus. And so all the riches of this world do not compare to the value 
of knowing Jesus. Yet the reality for the church in Smyrna is that their present experience is suffering. And so Jesus speaks into that. In verse 10 he says, Do not be afraid of what you were about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. So Jesus talks about what they are about to suffer. And so this tells us something about our own suffering and trials, though they might be very different to what Smyrna faced. It tells us that our problems, our suffering, our trials, our persecution are not a shock to Jesus. You know, sometimes when I encounter something negative in my life, I, I, I respond as if Jesus must be surprised by this, that he's somehow caught off guard by it. But the reality is he knows. He knew. He's not surprised. He's not absent. He's not overwhelmed. And most importantly, he is with you. He is with you in the trial, whatever that may be for you right now, whatever that may be for you in the future to come. He knows. He's not surprised. He's not absent. He's not overwhelmed. He is with you in the trial. And so Jesus says that this persecution that's coming on the church in Smyrna will last 10 days. He says some of them will be put in prison. And so this may be a literal 10 days. Uh, we touched on earlier last week that, that there's much figurative language uh, in Revelation. And so it may have been a particular persecution that lasted 10 days, or maybe not. But what we can grab from that is that the suffering is limited compared to the glory of eternity. That the suffering is a moment compared to the eternal dwelling with he that has overcome death. Because we do know that Smyrna, whether this particular trial lasted 10 days or not, Smyrna was persecuted for many years. There was a man named Polycarp who was a bishop or an elder of the church in Smyrna. He had been a disciple of John uh, and he's one of the non-earliest kind of sources we have after the, the biblical writings. And so he was martyred, that is, he was killed for his faith in about the year 155 AD, so 50 years or so after Revelation was written and circulated to the churches. And so whether there was a 10-day period or not, there was ongoing trial for them. In kind of doing some study and research for this, uh, I found some quotes from Bishop Polycarp, one of the records about him is the martyrdom of Polycarp. And, and so he's apparently said uh, at the stake that they were burning him and so what they would often do in a martyr-type situation was they'd set up the fire and the pyre and all of that and they say, now reject Jesus. And if not, woof. And so Polycarp apparently said, 80 and 6 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and saviour? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And so standing on a pile of presumably wood, and whether they'd soaked it down with oil or anything that would kind of give it that dramatic effect, standing on the bed of flames that would 
undoubtedly painfully consume his body, he was able to say, this is, this is just but a moment. I'm not concerned about this. My focus is on eternity. And so whether it was 10 days, 50 years, whatever that looked like, the point that Jesus is making that we can take is that no matter how long it is, it's just for a moment compared to the enormity of eternity. And so our suffering may vary. Praise God, we are not in a situation where many of us have to, to make that stand, that Bishop Polycarp mate, that we're on a pyre and we've got to reject Jesus or not. Sometimes maybe that would be a more clear-cut decision to make, that we make lots of little decisions every day, I guess. But, but our suffering... Our persecution, what's said against us may vary, but, but I think Jesus' instruction that he gives to the church in Smyrna would be the same instruction he would give to us in every trial that we face, whether it's directly because of our faith or whether it's just a circumstance of life. I think Jesus would say the same thing, and ultimately that is this, be faithful. He says, don't be afraid, be faithful. And so Jesus says this, the letter ends, as I said, with whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And I said this last week, and sorry, it's a bit corny, but put your hand up if you have ears. <laughs> this is the wake-up moment of the message. Some of us are not sure. It's just a little... If you have ears, then Jesus originally addressed this to the church of Smyrna, but he wanted you to hear this. And so he says in verses 10 and 11, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Or I'd say to us, what we're presently suffering if we are, or what we're about to suffer, or what we've suffered in the past. Don't be afraid. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid. We've touched on the fact that he's not surprised. He's not shocked. He is with you. And so we don't need to fear. That's one of those common lines that comes up in Scripture. Don't be afraid, for I am with you, says the Lord. And then he says, be faithful even to the point of death. And he says, I'll give life as the victor's crown. And so here what he's talking about is eternal life, which is made clear in that next verse. He says you'll not be hurt by the second death. That is, and later on in Revelation we're told that the second death is the eternal punishment that Polycarp talks about for those who reject Jesus. And so he's saying that like Polycarp embodied in his martyrdom, don't shy away from even death in this life, because you will not be hurt by the second death. You will not be hurt by the judgment and punishment of God because you've trusted in Jesus. Because he is the first and he is the last. He is dead and now is alive and he has promised that through his conquering of death, even though we may die for our faith in Jesus, as Polycarp did, as most of the early uh, apostles did, as many thousands throughout history have and still do today die for their faith though we may die if we trust in Jesus we will live in him 
And so is our faith a little bit like Jenga? What I mean by that is, is it something that like it looks pretty robust, but is there a point at which if you push it too far, it'll all fall apart? Is our faith like Jenga? And what I mean by that is, well, what, what can be taken away from your faith? I know in the real game you meant to put them back on top. I know how Jenga works. But like, what, what can be taken away? Our job, our loved ones. Like, what is it for you that is the point at which your faith will crumble? And, and I have to confess that often my faith is really like Jenga. There's too much of my circumstances that it's based upon. That I'm kind of like, I think, yeah, I trust Jesus no matter what. But in reality, you know, if you take this away from me, my wife, my house, for some of us it might be the car. Where's the car? This is the car. This might be the car. And so for many of us, that's kind of what our faith is like. And often, I think for all of us, this is to some degree true, that, that if we kind of keep losing things, circumstances, our faith gets a little bit shakier. Take one from the top. And so our faith is like, oh, I shouldn't have done that because I want to do this now. Our faith is like this cup teetering on top of the tower. That, that if we keep taking things away... At some point, it's going to come toppling down. And, and so the question, and I'm not, uh, this is not my question, I'm asking myself, looking around the room. Oh, Dan, yeah, sorry, dude. It's, it's, it's the question I think this scripture is asking of all of us this morning. Is our faith like Jenga? Is there a point at which it falls apart? Because I think what Jesus is calling us to in his words to the church of Smyrna is saying being faithful even to the point of death that actually everything can be stripped away. And so our faith, rather than resting on top of all of life's circumstances and that if it's all chipped away or pushed too far and it comes crashing down, our faith should be resting on Jesus. That that can all be stripped away and our faith will still be standing on the solid rock that is Jesus. That's the kind of faith that we're called to. That every single brick of our well-being, of circumstance, of life, of comfort, of peace, of joy, that is of this world. And I'm not saying those things are bad. We're told in Scripture that every good and perfect gift comes from God comes down from the Father of lights. The, these things represent gifts from God. But what I'm saying is, is there something that's a deal breaker for you? Is there a plank in your Jenga tower that, well, if God takes that away from me, I'm done? When I think about this, I'm reminded of a dear spiritual mother from our uh, church that we were at in Sydney before we moved to Yass and um, her husband has since passed but he was, he was someone who was um, unwell for his entire life. He wasn't actually expected to live past 18 and um, so he had many times in hospital, many, many times where doctors said we think this might be the end. And so she shared with me once that a long time ago she had a moment with Jesus in church where 
she just was, was, was coming before Jesus and Jesus invited her to step over a line. And what that represented for her was, even if he's taken away, my heart is still wholeheartedly trusting in the Lord. Even if the one who, and you know, they were mother and father spiritually to many, many people, but weren't able to have their own children. And so, as often as the case in relationships like that, they were, they were so in love with one another, so deeply in love with one another. He was so much of her world. But it was, it's been something that stuck with me because it's such a powerful testimony that, that, and it was many years after that he actually passed away, but, but that she had to cross this line. And, and for her, that would have been the last plank. Everything else would have been kind of resolved in her heart that anything else you take away, but that was the last thing. Jesus said, will you still love me? Will your faith still be in me if I take that plank away? And so what might that be for you and I this morning? What might be the thing in our tower that we're pretty all right with everything else? Job, car, you know, well, I guess the house is just a house. But what, what is that thing? It doesn't mean that God's going to take it away. None of, none of us are hoping or wishing for that. But what is your faith actually standing on? It's a challenging word. I'm sure the church of Smyrna might have looked through because they all received it. Oh, couldn't we get one of these other letters? The lukewarm one? That seems easier. I can be hot. I can, yeah. It's a challenging word. But it's one that those of us who have ears need to hear. Especially including me. What could be taken away? And so Jesus says, be faithful to the point of death. We're called this morning to have a faith that even if the whole thing gets knocked over. And we've had a little bit of an experience of that with COVID. Praise God that our experience of that has been far more um, benign, so to speak, for most of us. There have been those in our country that have lost loved ones indeed. But we've had a little bit of a life turning upside down here. But will our faith still stand when all else is stripped away? So I want to invite you to take a stand this morning, literally. Um, the worship team's going to come up. Trip Hazard, Carl, did not do a risk assessment. <laughs> I mean, yes, yes, I did. I just remembered that this is being recorded. I did totally, no. Um, and so for the, those in kids' church who are not part of the worship team, so good to see father and daughter up here leading worship together. Um, kids' church is a little while from finishing, so we've got time to, to dwell and stand in this place. And So many of us are standing literally, and there's no judgment if you've chosen to sit. Hopefully you know that. But I want to encourage us to take a stand this morning in our hearts that we'll cross that line that that beloved spiritual mother that I talked about crossed. That even if you take, or even if the most precious thing in this world to me is lost, I'll still love you. I'll still put all my faith in you. I'll still fix my eyes on eternity and not on the flames that are lapping around my feet. 
I want to finish with one final scripture. It's from Psalm 73, 26, and then I'm going to pray. Uh, and then we're just going to be led by our worship team. You can sing. Uh, you can sit and pray. You can do whatever you need to do in your heart before God to take that stand. <clears throat> Psalm 73, 26 says this, My flesh and my heart may fail. I would add, along with a whole lot else. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so, Heavenly Father, we know that the things of this world, everything that we have that is good, is a gift from you. And we thank you so much for it. Yet we pray this morning that you would help us to take a stand, that you would help us and empower us, that you would be our strength, that even though our flesh may fail, our heart may fail, we are weak and fickle. We pray that you would help us by your spirit to take a stand this morning. That even if the whole tower of life circumstance gets completely knocked over for us, even to the point of death, we will have faith and be faithful. Help us, Holy Spirit, to take that stand this morning. We know that we cannot do it in our own strength. Help us to take that stand, but more importantly, help us to live out that tomorrow and the day after and the week after and the year after for all of our days on this good gift of a planet that you've given us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who we fix our eyes upon, who was faithful to the point of death, even death on a cross, who was dead and now is alive and is the first fruits of promise of our eternal life. We pray in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. As you head back into your week, we want to encourage you to stay in His Word, stay in His love, and stay strong in your faith. Don't forget to keep up to date with what's happening via Facebook, Instagram, or via our website at ycbc.church. See you soon.